You're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, Nick Reynolds, arguably Wyoming's top political reporter, discusses his decision to leave the state and his unique take on political journalism. Politics is more than just talking points. It's you know really the story of everything. Plus, a new garden at Jackson's National Museum of Wildlife Art aims to better understand post-fire restoration. There's an assumption that native wild plants can take care of themselves. They do require a little bit of care in the beginning. But first, Teton County elected officials are expected to start a long discussion about a possible relocation of the rodeo and fairgrounds early next year. But as K-12's Will Walkie reports, debates over the future of the coveted 12-acre plot of land right in the middle of the town of Jackson are already starting to heat up. That's right, 500,000 of us proud and strong. Wyoming welcomes you all the way from the Grand Tetons. We'd bet a pair of silver spurs that rodeoing came to Jackson Hole on the day the very first man trailed into the valley. That's a quote from the Jackson Hole News and Guide in 1971, describing how integral the rodeo is to the character of Teton County. And to some local residents like Blair Moss, the grounds are still just as important today. I actually want to set my uh, daughter up with these cowboys because they are the most lovely gentlemen. They say they take their hats off when they meet you. They say, ma'am, they're so respectful. My daughter's 18. So I like I'm going to bring her down and meet these boys. The rodeo and fairgrounds have been located at their current home on Snow King Avenue for more than 80 years. And Moss is trying to keep them there. Moving the rodeo out of town is a dramatic change because we it is in the heart of the town. It's the heart of our community. And so we want it to stay there. It's not that we don't want affordable housing, but that can be other places. There are other create, creative ways we can come up with solutions for affordable housing without moving the rodeo. So it's not really an issue about affordable housing. It's an issue about saving and preserving the rodeo and fairgrounds in town where it belongs and where it should be. The rodeo grounds property is owned by the town of Jackson, which leases the land to Teton County. Earlier this summer, both the town council and board of county commissioners voted to consider a possible fairgrounds move in order to use the property for something else. Those discussions aren't set to start until next year, but Moss and Rebecca Bextell are funding a new Save the Rodeo campaign now, grabbing the bull by the horns, so to speak. The first approach is to raise public awareness and public sentiment for saving the rodeo ground. That's why Blair and I made the bumper stickers, the cards, and I'm actually seeing those bumper stickers around town. Folks are already writing to elected officials and bringing the rodeo grounds up in public meetings. After two residents raised the issue during an informal virtual chat with town councilors on September 29th, Jackson Vice Mayor Arne Jorgensen tried to put them at ease. It is not an effort to not have a fair or not have a rodeo at all. Um, It is simply a recognition that this is a significant asset for the town of Jackson. And are there other uses, such as housing, that might go there if a suitable site could be found in the county? Jorgensen says the lease for the rodeo grounds is up in 2026. So if a move is going to happen, planning needs to start now. Another person who'd like to get a move in the works is Claire Stumpf, coordinator for the local housing advocacy organization Shelter JH. She says opportunities like a town-owned 12-acre plot don't exactly grow on trees. The town of Jackson has been identified as one of the better places to build 
um, you know, more dense housing for folks. So the idea of capitalizing on a property that's already in town and walkable and set up for that kind of development is really exciting and a great opportunity. Stump says she likes the rodeo, too, and she takes visitors there when they come through town. But she's also seeing local workers and businesses suffer due to a lack of affordable housing. During election season for the last couple cycles, housing has been the number one issue that every single candidate has talked about. So I would like to see electeds really follow through with the commitments that they've made and prioritize homes here and and still preserve our culture and value you know, our Western character that we have by finding an, a new suitable location for the fairgrounds. Um, but I, I don't think it's an either or situation. I think there's a way for everybody to, to get what they want. Jackson Town Councilwoman Jessica Sell Chambers is one elected who says she wants to follow through on her campaign promises to help working people. During that September meeting with Jorgensen, she said she's in favor of moving the rodeo. I prefer to focus on community character rather than neighborhood character. But even Cell Chambers wants to make sure there's a suitable spot for the new grounds. And right now, it's not exactly clear where that would be. Bextel of Save the Rodeo says it's critical to secure a new location before anything else, but a move is still unacceptable for some locals. I think that where the rodeo grounds set is vital to businesses. I live near the rodeo grounds and I watch people every Wednesday and Saturday walking from restaurants to the rodeo grounds. As of press time, more than 1,200 people, about half from Wyoming and half from out of state, have signed a petition asking to put the fairgrounds move up to a vote in Teton County. As recently as 2012, attempts to move the rodeo grounds have been shot down by electeds following public outcry. And Bextel would support a vote now because she thinks the will of the people is still in her favor. Why wouldn't we vote on it again? Why would we just happen to glance at an agenda item from June 7th and see where all of a sudden the town and county are voting about a housing feasibility study for rezoning the rodeo? That just seems suspicious to me. For Bextel and Moss, they say the campaign comes down to historic preservation and not wanting to see their town change too much. Jackson keeps changing and getting rid of historical things and things that are part of the past, right? And progress isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's but we also just have to hold on to things that remind us of who we once were. KHOL reached out to the Wilson family, who's been running the rodeo for decades for comment on this story, but didn't receive a response by press time. Right now, they say they're saddling up for the winter season after a successful summer despite the pandemic. And in a recent meeting with elected officials, they confirmed that they're excited to keep running the rodeo for years to come. The question is, where's that going to be? Will Walkie, KHOL News. Wyoming's loss, and we are in your debt, were just some of the comments posted on Twitter last week in response to the news that Nick Reynolds is leaving the Cowboy State. Reynolds has reported on Wyoming politics for the past three years, first for the Casper Star Tribune and then Wildfile, and he was often one of the only reporters at the Wyoming State Legislature. KHOL's Kyle Mackey spoke to Reynolds about the difficulty of making a living in local news in Wyoming and his new role in South Carolina. Nick, 
I want to start as a fellow journalist just by thanking you for your nuanced and thorough coverage of politics and policy in Wyoming over the past three years. I've only been here for a little less than a year, but I, like so many other readers, have come to really rely on your coverage. A lot of us are really going to miss you. You also wrote this beautiful but also sad essay last week about your decision to leave Wyoming and what's next for you. But I wonder if you could give us a little recap of that column. Yeah, um, I guess I've kind of made a habit of doing those over the last couple of years. Um, I don't know, the way I approach my beat, I don't know, like I I always thought, you know, journalism is always like this human thing. And um, if there's I guess, you know, some reporters always like to keep their sources at an arm's distance. And, you know, to some degree, um, I definitely do that. You know, professionally, you know, you have to be able to draw that line at some point. But to say that doing journalism for three years and not building relationships, uh, I I just, you know, can't do my job that way. I can't function that way. And um, I have built a lot of close relationships with people. And I kind of just figured, you know, I should put something out there to acknowledge why I was leaving. And it was solely for professional reasons. Uh, I mean, I feel really strongly about Wyoming and, you know, covering the issues for a while. It's, you know, you can present them in a really unbiased way, but, you know, I you know, have been concerned about the future for people who want to stay in the state or, you know, people who don't have opportunities there. I've been hearing those stories for years. And while I was privileged enough to go to an organization like Wildfile, which, you know, did pay a lot more than the Casper Star Tribune or, you know, one of these other smaller publications, that's not the story for everyone. It's a difficult state to make it in. And I, I guess when reporters leave, you know, you don't really get the story of why, but oftentimes I know that that's the case. And with the platform I have and the relationships I have built, you know, I felt it was important for people to know um, exactly what the reality was on the ground here. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciated about your farewell column is that you really call out the challenges of making it, making a living as a local reporter in Wyoming. So I appreciated your call out too at the end of the column, asking people to pay for their news. And I will echo that with you. Yeah, even if it's not a subscription model, it's there's no other way to do it. There's only so many foundations out there that are giving money to nonprofits, and they're all competing for the same pot of money. Right. Well, so you touched on this a bit, but you reflected in your column about the love that you've developed for the state, for its people. And if I may, I want to quote just one quick line that I really loved. You wrote, to so many people across the country, Wyoming is just a place with beautiful mountains, a lot of guns, and a lot of dirt. But I will forever see its people. So tell me about some of the memories and some of the favorite stories that you feel like will especially stick with you as you move on. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of them. You know, there's, um, you know, covering politics. I mean, I could name like a million different political stories, but you know, there's, of course, you know, a few pieces that are just distinctly Wyoming that always stick with you. Like, you know, the, the last one I wrote for Wildfile about the timber industry up in Crook County, um, you know, that was a fun story to do. And it was... Um, cool to be able to tell that story in a way that hasn't been presented before. And there were some goofy ones too. I remember this one time I went out to, I was actually in Lusk working on a story about um, economic development. You know, Lusk is um, the site of uh, a number of failed economic development initiatives over the last couple of decades. And I wanted to go explore why they failed and how they're trying to move beyond them. And the guy who was showing me around, he owns a Best Western in town. And when I get there, he's like, did you eat breakfast yet? And I'm like, no, I, I haven't. Why? And he's like, well, 
my best Western wants one best breakfast out of the entire best Western chain because he, during the summer, he has a chuck wagon, but you know, in the off season, he has like a burrito bar. Like he has like, you know, four different types of pancake batter. It was just so over the top for this small hotel in Lusk. And I went there to write one story, but ended up writing a sidebar about the best Western breakfast. It was that good. Okay, Nick. Well, what's next for you? Tell us about this new position that you've taken in South Carolina. Uh, so I'm joining the state politics team at the uh, Charleston Post and Courier. Basically, just going to be a part of a multi-member team. You know, working under a bureau chief and a state house editor. Basically, just writing uh, stories from the South Carolina state house for the largest newspaper in the state. Obviously, the organization is an amazing one. I've applied at this paper multiple times throughout my career and uh, to actually be able to go there. It's you know, a huge opportunity. Really excited for it. You know, it strikes me as you were speaking that you cover something and you're so embedded in this thing, this aspect of American life that so many people hate, actually. You know, like how often do you hear the phrase, oh, I hate politics or let's just not talk politics. Why do you like covering politics, Nick? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I'm just good at it. It just kind of happened. You know, politics is more than just talking points. It's, you know, really the story of everything. And it's um, you know, being able to dig into that at a deeper level than just, um, you know, who said this and or, you know, what major scandal broke that week. I, I think that's something that mass media especially tends to miss. And it's, I think, the thing that ultimately got me into doing this is, I don't know, I wanted to do better. And I'm trying my best, I guess. Well, you're doing a great job. And once again, just thank you for your work in Wyoming. And we wish you the best in South Carolina. Oh, well, appreciate it. And thanks for having me. You can also find an extended version of KHOL's interview with Nick Reynolds on our website, 891KHOL.org. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm news director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, a 2019 fire scorched 90 acres behind the National Museum of Wildlife Art on the outskirts of Jackson. KHOL's Emily Cohen has a story on how volunteers with the Teton Botanical Garden are now working to restore 20 of those acres, partly in an effort to better understand post-fire restoration. Over the remainder of October, volunteers will be installing 5,000 plants as part of a new garden that aims to educate museum visitors about the habitat and ecology of the greater Yellowstone region. Trevor Bloom of the nonprofit Teton Botanical Garden guides us through the new installation that begins just behind the restaurant palette and extends for about a quarter mile along the existing sculpture trail. You go from palette, which is a wildflower meadow, through an aspen grove into a sagebrush step, into another aspen grove by the Herb Alpert um, statues, along another sagebrush step and wildflower meadow area into another aspen grove. And then the pollinator garden is all the way at the north end of the sculpture trail where there's a wolf and a wild rose bush. And the pollinator garden kind of sim symbolically then extends into the natural zone. 
The garden reflects the natural habitats found in Teton County, habitats that change based on elevation and water availability. Raylene McCalman of the nonprofit Teton Botanical Garden says that this design is intentional. Well, if you notice driving through Teton County, depending on the elevation, depending on the water supply, um, you're going to be finding very different plants. So down here at the, the Elk Refuge, there's a riparian area, there's a lot of water, it's um, mainly grasslands uh, and with the meandering stream through here. But as soon as you cross the highway, there's no water. And so what you see is a sagebrush step. Um, this is more natural for the arid areas of Wyoming where there isn't as much water, but where we happen to be standing right here, which is right next to an aspen grove, um, this is uh, an artificial installation right here, but it does mimic what we would see at a higher elevation, cooler temperatures with more water. The garden is partly a study area, a way for scientists to learn more about post-fire restoration. It's also a way to demonstrate the benefits of native plants. And in a hotter and drier world, that's a good thing, according to McCalman. There's an assumption that native wild plants are, can take care of themselves. And the important thing to note is that they do require a little bit of care in the beginning, which is why we're dependent upon the irrigation. But once they're established, they actually take much less care than a manicured landscape. Um, they take less water, they take less weeding. You're, you, you're just not putting in the same number of inputs into a, a native plant landscape as you would one of the more manicured lawns and um, mulched gardens, those kinds of things. The museum plans to debut an installation with interpretive signs as well as an audio tour in both English and Spanish next spring. Until then, there are volunteer planting days throughout the remainder of October. To get involved before the long Teton winter sets in, contact Trevor Bloom at trevor.bloom at tnc.org. I'm Emily Cohen for listener-supported KHOL Jackson Hole Community Radio. story today is part of our ongoing reporting collaboration with the Solutions Journalism Network and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, highlighting affordable housing solutions across the Mountain West. Imagine turning 18 and finding yourself aged out of the foster care system. You likely wouldn't have the resources to support yourself and may face homelessness. A program in Montrose, Colorado is aimed at helping youth in that situation. Laura Palmasano reports for KVNF. Once a week, the residents of First Place on 2nd Street in Montrose gather in the community room. They share a meal and catch up with each other and with staff from CASA of the 7th Judicial District. Today, one of the residents is making lunch for the group. Um, it's just going to be just a nice blush vodka sauce with bucatini pasta. CASA is an area nonprofit that serves children and families who've experienced abuse and neglect. 
the nonprofit owns First Place on 2nd Street. It's an eight-unit housing complex for youth ages 18 to 24 who've aged out of the foster care system or are at risk for becoming homeless. Carlton Mason is the executive director of CASA. If a young person turns 18 and they don't have family support, there are not many options. Mason says the complex can house up to 12 young adults at a time. And I'll be honest with you, the, when a young person moves in, the first, often the first 10 to 12 months is very chaotic. It's young people struggling with adulting. But over time, that transitions to where these young people begin to look for jobs and begin to think about the future. He says CASA provides more than just housing for residents of first place. They're also there to help navigate life challenges, such as getting a driver's license, a degree, or a job. We also have expanded into providing mental health services. We have two therapists on staff. Rent at first place is covered by state housing vouchers. Unless a resident works, then 30% of their income goes towards rent. 18-year-old Keegan McCorkle lived in foster care most of his life. He graduated from high school in January and moved into the micro-housing community in March. He says it provides him with an affordable place to live. It's really hard to find anywhere to live that's cheap, especially on minimum wage. For single rooms here in Montrose, it was around maybe $300 to $500 a month just for a room. For apartments, it was $950 up, and here I pay $371 for a whole apartment. McCorkle says living at Casa's facility also feels safe. And here you feel comfortable. It's like a kind of small sense of community. We're all around the same age. It's just easier to get along. First Place on 2nd Street opened in 2018. A mixture of state and local funding paid for it. The Colorado Division of Housing, or DOH, awarded CASA $500,000 toward the project. It was the first such housing project for youth ages 18 to 24, aging out of foster care or facing homelessness in the state. Zach Schaefner is a supportive housing services manager with DOH. So we've learned a great deal from First Place on 2nd Street. The focus on elements like harm reduction and trauma-informed care and really providing those low barriers and flexible supports. We've really seen the success of that intervention and that approach at First Place on 2nd Street. Schaefner says DOH also learned important design elements for future developments. First Place on 2nd Street is a mix of four one-bedroom units and four two-bedroom units. He says the two-bedroom units were intended for siblings or young couples with a child, but there was a greater need for single individuals. Really, to the extent possible, we look for single and one-bedroom units. We've seen that that can be effective, that can reduce some of those interpersonal conflicts that can occur with roommate situations when we're working with a population that has some complex histories of trauma and he says supportive housing, like First Place on 2nd Street, is an effective way to serve the needs of young adults experiencing homelessness or exiting the foster care system. The Colorado Division of Housing has funded similar projects in Boulder, Broomfield, Delta, and Grand Junction. And Schaefner says DOH is working to bring more supportive housing to the state. The project in Delta is the latest effort from CASA. It's under construction now and scheduled to open in December. It will house six youth and one-bedroom suites. Carlton Mason says CASA is expanding because there's a need. The cost of living is just too high for a young person to kind of transition from nothing to all of a sudden having the income to sustain a place to live. On average, more than 200 young people age out of the foster care system every year in Colorado. National data shows about 20% of these youth find themselves homeless when they turn 18. 
Mason says CASA can't house every young adult seeking its services. It just doesn't have the resources. But the difference they make is one small part of solving the affordable housing crisis. Reporting from Montrose, I'm Laura Palmisano. And now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. The Teton County Board of Commissioners and Jackson Town Council heard from several local human services organizations at a joint information meeting Monday. Many nonprofit leaders discussed staffing, funding, and housing challenges as sources for recent struggles, such as cutting hours or services. And Cheryl Lund, executive director of 122, says workers that stay here are often fighting to make ends meet. When we look at our rent assistance applications, and this is on average, but the average household is paying $1,475 in rent and bringing in $2,015 in income. That's 73% of their income going to their rent. Obviously, that is not a workable situation. After significant delays, the state of Wyoming has so far handed out about $100,000 in COVID emergency rental assistance to Teton County. And Lund says 122 distributed 25,000 meals to those who needed them in August. A fire caused major damage to Big Hole Barbecue in Victor overnight Monday and early Tuesday morning. The blaze was contained to the downtown restaurant, which was unoccupied at the time, according to the Teton Valley News. No injuries were reported, but the restaurant's newly remodeled kitchen was severely damaged. Victor Mayor Will Froelich stopped by to see the destruction Tuesday morning, and he says the fire is a blow to the whole community. You know, it's always tough when you have something like this happen. You know, fires are, are truly devastating, whether it's a business or a person's home. And Big Hole, to me, it's, it's a staple of the town. It's a staple of the community. Um, it's truly been a, a remarkable thing to watch how quickly they grew and how appreciated they are as a business in our, in our downtown course. Froelich also says the city is committed to helping Big Hole fast-track its redevelopment, but the restaurant isn't likely to reopen anytime soon. As of press time, a GoFundMe to benefit Big Hole Barbecue employees while the restaurant is closed has raised more than $7,700. Harriet Hegeman, an attorney from Cheyenne and candidate to unseat Representative Liz Cheney in the 2022 congressional primary, came to Teton County and addressed a crowd of about 60 people Wednesday. She began by introducing herself as a fourth-generation Wyomingite with more than 30 family members still living in the Cowboy State. I am proud to be from Wyoming, and I am proud of what our history is. But I'm also proud of Wyoming for being as independent as it is. We have a lot of very independent-minded people. We understand our communities and our families. We understand that we are the best at taking care of our families, not the government. Hegeman is considered a frontrunner to unseat Cheney because she was endorsed by former President Donald Trump nearly a month ago. Although Hegeman was previously a delegate for Ted Cruz in the 2016 Republican primary and said Trump wasn't the right candidate at the time, she fully endorsed the job he did in the White House to her potential constituents Wednesday. The night that President Trump was elected was one of the greatest nights I've ever had. I was 
After one crowd member asked about the 2020 election, Hageman said she has questions about whether or not it was legitimate, despite over 60 failed lawsuits regarding its results since Election Day. Rumors had been circulating on social media in recent weeks that Target, the big box chain that previously announced it was building a new store in Jackson, was pulling out of their commitment due to staffing issues. KHOL reached out to Target, and they confirmed that the rumors are false. A 70,000-square-foot location is still in the works where the old Kmart used to be, but details about the opening date and what the shopping experience may look like for patrons are still not available yet. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate it if you could take an extra minute to leave a rating for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.